Gotham City, like any other large metropolis, abounds in girls of all shapes and sizes. Debutantes, nurses, stenographers, and librarians. Gotham City Library, Miss Gordon speaking. Lopez hair removal, this is Jose. Holy transformation. One minute, plain Barbara Gordon, librarian and Commissioner Gordon's daughter. And the next minute, something new has been added. Batgirl, modeled after her idol, Batman. Holy apparition! No, boy wonder, I'm Batgirl. You are no longer alone, Cape Crusader. It took me three years to track down the Jade Gato, and three more to figure out how to steal it. Funny, it only took me ten minutes to figure out how to snatch it back. No matter how you do it, crime doesn't pay girls. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long that even my mama thinks that my mind is gone. But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it. Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of. You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking. Or you and your homies might be lying in chalk. I really hate the trip, but I gotta low. They croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke, fool I'm the kind of cheater, little homies wanna be like On my knees in the night, saying prayers in the streetlight Salwate. I'm your host, Stella, and this is Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon Podcast, episode 53 for January MMXIII. Episode 53 is brought to you by Gastro Gus. <coughs> oh no, not again. Do you have a weak gag reflex? Do you sometimes cough so hard that you accidentally throw up? Do you worry that your sibling sleeping in the bunk bed above you may throw up on you in the middle of the night? Have no fear, Gastro Gus is here. With its new and improved formula, Gastro Gus will prevent you from being the little girl from The Exorcist. No longer do you have to worry about vomitus stains on your sweater as you make your way to work or school, and now you can go to the Sadie's Hawkins dance without fear of blowing chunks on your date. Snag Gastro Gus and there will be no gag. Brought to you by the makers of Afro Away. Bad Girl to Oracle is also brought to you by MileHighComics.com, your new and collectible comic book store. Mile High Comics has an inventory of over 5 million comics from the gold, silver, bronze, and modern age, and over 100,000 trade paperbacks. If you're not into the vintage stock, Mile High Comics also has a subscription service called the New Issue Comics Express, offering a discounted price for comics ready to hit the shelves. Examples of the prices you may encounter are March's Batgirl number 18 and Birds of Prey number 18, both for $2.69. So if you're looking for vintage back issues or a great modern subscription service, be sure to check out MileHighComics.com. Well, I hope you all had a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. 
Maybe your stockings were filled with, with candy or with little comic goodies. I myself uh, got some, some great gifts. I think probably the best gift of all certainly was uh, having my brother come home. He's, he's been on deployment since June and he was supposed to go until March, but they actually brought, brought the boat in. So it was great to see him for Christmas. I think that was the best gift. Also got uh, the complete Rocky and Bullwinkle series on DVD and I just love that. I love Moose, so uh, Bullwinkle has always been a favorite character of mine. And got a couple pieces of clothing um, from the dirt track at Charlotte. I've recently gotten into sprint cars because I've been going to Knoxville with my dad in the summer. Got some ornaments as well, some Looney Tunes and, and moose ornaments, which I've got a bunch of those. I've got superhero, moose, and Looney Tunes. So I guess every three years I can sort of rotate whenever I decide to get a tree. But, you know, just being home and being able to relax, being with my family and things like that, I think that was that was just great, you know. And not being screamed at by students, uh, which is great. Screamed at in excitement. I don't want it to seem like they're violent kids, but... Man, middle scores can be loud. That's all I have to say. But I hope that you also had a wonderful time with family and friends and just a relaxing time as well. Now, we do have some news to get through. Hopefully, you've heard that uh, Gail Simone is back on Batgirl. Um, remember that she was fired unceremoniously through email. And, of course, you know, it only took a week or so. Fan outrage was was big I'm sure and letters and emails were written in and now Simone is back and so I'm sure you, you may be wondering well what do I think about this and I've got mixed feelings I'm happy I guess that she gets another chance and that the fact that she was fired in email is sort of well not really washed away but you know she's getting another chance she's being brought back and hopefully that editor <laughs> realize the error of his ways but who knows what that working relationship is going to be like now um so i mean good for her for being back on the book it, it'll also be good i guess to see what she had planned for for babs and and what she's going to be revealing about her her life and leading up to getting out of the chair and and sort of her years as Batgirl because she said she had those in the can so now we can actually see it I'm sad that Simone is back because again I've not been happy with this run I think it's time for somebody else to try to tackle this character and breathe new life in the character and I think that Simone's talents are not being used where they could be because I think that She's really shown a lot of strength in other books, and it's just not here. And I'm also sad because, man, if fan outcry is heard around the world and DC listens to it, potentially, about Simone, then, my gosh, this must be like a filter. Only certain things they're going to listen to. Because think about the fan outcry that we've been hearing for years about Cassandra Kane and where the heck she's gone. And now we've got Stephanie Brown and, of course, other people that we've certainly missed, like Wally West and, and other characters that have been lost in the shuffle in the new 52. So it just stinks that they listen to some things but not others. And, and I'd really, I wish I could have like an unfiltered discussion with Gail Simone and just talk with her about you know what went down and and how it came back and I would just love to hear what's going on in the bad offices but of course that 
will never really happen probably uh, but maybe that could be one of my my goals for 2013 is to get an interview with her and uh, well of course before she leaves Batgirl that that book but I mean she's back so I think that's great for people who have been enjoying the run which I know uh, that there are those people and um, you know I I can only hope along with other people that have not been enjoying the run that perhaps uh, maybe this was a wake-up call and maybe she's going to do some sort of change and really go at the character with a little more a little more passion young justice is also back and this is uh, exciting news of it came back on the fifth i believe which is great which was the episode that stephanie brown pops up in and then there is that whole conspiracy theory and then they had a, another episode which was uh, you know and somebody said it was so so but i actually really liked it and it was so weird because here's some spoilers here so if you don't want to know what goes on in young justice but the entire episode mcgann is in it and she does not talk for the first half and so my thinking was well I guess Danica <laughs> McKellar was not there to record lines, uh, but later she does talk, and it just shows how messed up she is from sort of the whole revelation that she found out from the previous episode, and just that last scene, I really feel like there's going to be a relationship shakeup uh, between, well, I guess it's a triangle now, but Superboy, McGann, and Lagoon Boy, uh, just because... I mean, number one, she ignored Lagoon Boy's phone call. But when Connor knocks at the door, I mean, she hesitated, but she ended up opening it. And I think she could have pretended to not be there, even though he knew he probably would have walked away. But she let him in. And, I mean, obviously they're going to have a discussion of what's been going on with her. I don't know how much she's going to reveal, but I just feel like a relationship shakeup is going to happen. So I guess we'll have to tune in. Uh, this coming Saturday and find out what happens but I do so much enjoy that TV show and also in in the animated news we've got the Dark Knight Returns part 2 which is coming out on DVD January 29th so you guys will definitely have to check that out now the first oh man the first part was it was amazing um, and I recently read you know the Dark Knight Returns but I, I think I loved issues 1 and 2 better than 3 and 4 um, and I mean part of 3 I think Joker's still in 3 I mean that was still great but just the Superman thing doesn't really make sense to me and I'm wondering how that will be adapted into the film so that'll be interesting to see now finally on my news agenda I've got to talk a little bit about Lent because it actually impacts <laughs> it impacts Batgirl to Oracle here so for those of you that you know are not interested in this you can fast forward uh, but you know Lent you got to give something up basically and normally it's you're sort of supposed to give up a vice perhaps in the past few years I think I've done sweets or so but one time I also did comics and I really like Lent because it, it forces you to give something up and, and I think the best Lent that you can do is something that you do every day and you cannot imagine being without it and I think that's the point of it because what you want to do is put God above everything else and I think that in our crazy and busy lives it is really difficult to do that because even me like right now right now I'm I am podcasting instead of you know sitting down the word and reading and everything and just lives get in the way and this is a way to 
put that first and foremost. And at the end, man, giving up comics, it was everything. I couldn't podcast. I couldn't read comics. Couldn't go to the comic book store. Didn't go on like Marvel.com or DC Comics or Newsarama, any of those sites. It was so difficult. But at the end, when it's when those 40 days are done, you just think... You know, if I had to, I could keep going like this. And I think that's the point, that the fact that if you can give up everything for him, then then that is the way to go. And I did a devotional on this, uh, just leaving things behind. And if there was a fire, you know, the question that I posed at the end of the devotional was, if there's a fire, it's not about what would you take with you, but could you leave it all behind, uh, except for your children, living things, I'm sure. But, you know, could you do it? Uh, so... That's Lent. Okay, so Lent. So what am I going to do? Am I giving up podcasting? Well, i got to set the stage first. So there's a student that I have. And you, as a teacher, you would probably love to see these bright, inspirational faces, these shocked and wide-eyed looks uh, when learning things. But this particular student, if you have a piece of candy, a sweet of some kind, you're like walking around with it, as if you may give it to her, her eyes will bug out of her head so much. I cannot even describe it. Like, bam. And you wish that it would be for learning and uh, Latin because that's what I teach. But no, sweets. So I decided to plant into her head because she loves sweets so much you know, you should give up sweets for Lent. And so it wasn't even a question, like, would you give up sweets for Lent? But I just, like, each, you know, week or so, I would plant something, like, well, this is going to be difficult for you when you give up sweets for Lent. It wasn't even asking her. It was just pushing it in there. And so it just kept coming that basically she has decided, of course not of her own will, uh, to give up sweets for Lent, uh, which is just amazing. I'm going to support her because I basically forced that upon her. But I'm going to support her and also not have sweets. But that's really not that difficult for me. So I'm also going to give up shipping. Uh, and I'm sure there is a gasp heard around the world for that. But basically, yeah, I can't ship. I cannot. I'm still sort of laying the the, the foundation of what this means. But you definitely know that there will be no shipper spotlight for two episodes uh so you will have a shipper spotlight this episode and a very special one in fact and then in february at the beginning i'm going to do um the annual which is the second annual shipper special with uh donovan morgan grant uh but after that the second the actual regular february show and then the march show there's not going to be a shipper spotlight tbu if someone brings up a shipper couple that we need to i I have to abstain from that. In my actual life, I'm going to have to avoid shipping my students because I embarrass them by making a heart with my hands and, you know, putting two people inside of that heart. So I can't do that. Can't sing any songs because I enjoy singing Beauty and the Beast and uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? Can't do that. So it's going to be tough because that's really changing, I think, the way I live. But, but I think it is all about... I mean, you have to choose something that is going to be difficult for you. It can't be an evil or an easy road to take. So, I've got the the sweets, and then I've got the shipping, and I guess we'll see how we go. But hopefully, you guys will be okay because you'll technically be Lent on Lent with me uh, for Shipper Spotlight. You'll be giving that up as well. But those are the 
the news bits that I have. So let us get into the reviews. First up, we have Detective Comics number 488, the leader of the Dark Lords. It is a February-March 1980 publication date. Writer Jack C. Harris, penciler Jose Delbo, inker Frank Chiarmonte, letterer Ben Oda, and colorist Adrian Roy. Also seen in this issue are The Spook's Death Sentence for Batman, featuring Batman, The Last Duty, featuring Clem Schenectady, Minus One Miracle Car, featuring Elongated Man, and Where Strike the Assassins, featuring Batman. Batgirl, a.k.a. former Congresswoman Babs Gordon, rides around the west side of Gotham City at midnight, bemoaning the fact that she will not be able to clean that part of the city up when suddenly a youth runs in front of her cycle and then two other guys jump him. Batgirl goes to his rescue and the two guys, both sporting Dark Lord's jackets, rush off after being unable to defeat her. She recognizes a youth who got jumped as Len Rockwell, leader of the street gang The Invaders. He was recently picked up on a murder charge because the leader of the Dark Lords got himself dead on Invader turf, but the police had no witnesses and no weapons, so he was released. She considers this as she zooms away and ends up turning around to check something out when she sees three Dark Lords in the alley looking for a knife. One of them tells the new leader they should stay off Invader turf, but Sanchez is just told to shut up. Becker goes to GCPD headquarters and uses a duplicate of Gordon's master key in order to get into the file room and get the Ramirez file. Gordon happens upon her and asks what happened since she disappeared after her farewell speech. Babs is a little down on herself saying she thought she did a good job and her father tells her to be strong and Gordon's don't quit. Batgirl rides to an abandoned firehouse, which is the Dark Ward's new hideout. There she finds Sanchez and locks him in a room. He quickly talks and explains that the gang was just keeping the neighborhood safe for their sisters, mothers, and girlfriends. Then somebody kills Ramirez and all hell breaks loose while the cops sit on their hands. He stayed in the hideout since he didn't want to fight in a big gang war, and he tells her that they are at the docks. Batgirl makes it just in time and strings up the new leader, Salgoto, and accuses him of murdering Ramirez. How does she know? Because Salgoto accused Rockwell of stabbing Ramirez to death, but that was a detail not released to the media. Batgirl gives the gangs her quasi-blessing to continue their work to protect their streets and to follow Rockwell and Sanchez. As she speeds away, she thinks about what hope tomorrow brings, and she speaks with her father in the morning, telling him that he was right and leaders are important, and there is room for Congresswoman Gordon and Batgirl, so she will continue to fight as both until the next election. Well, this was certainly an interesting way to let readers know that Babs lost the election. It was really only set up by the intro and conversations between Babs and her father. I think it would have been nice to have continued right from the previous issue and seen the results firsthand because we sort of left off as she was about to find out the results and she was right at that podium. What an interesting crime to put Batgirl up against. Uh, when I saw the titles, uh, or just the title of Dark Lords, I was expecting something supernatural. I think the story certainly falls in line with the concern that Babs had that she could never do enough, but we see that there are others who are trying to protect the streets, even though it may be in a less appropriate way. And while I can understand why she gave her approval to the gangs, it was a little weird to see her say that it was okay for the gangs to exist, even if they aren't entirely legal. Of course, vigilantes aren't legal either. 
uh, you know, I guess these gangs are sort of like the Yancey Street Gang in Fantastic Four. You know, they're not really into drugs or other really bad stuff, but will do whatever is necessary to sort of protect the house and actually keep uh, that garbage away from their family in the streets. It was interesting to see Batgirl muse about copying her dad's key, uh, and it was great that her thoughts on the locked door were repeated later on in the firehouse as well, because she actually talks about locking it from the outside, and then at the firehouse she locks Sanchez in from the outside. I liked the gang fight scene and how it all unfolded. It was nice to see that the gangs have some similarities and they're able to stop before any bloodshed happened. And it certainly seemed like a, a scene out of West Side Story, you know, the Jets, the Sharks, the Jets, the Sharks. <laughs> The Jets are gonna have their day tonight. The Jets are gonna have their way tonight. The Puerto Ricans grumble, fair fight. But if they start a rumble, we'll rumble them right. We're gonna hand them a surprise tonight. We're gonna cut them down to size tonight. And luckily for us, Babs has decided to fight another day. This is the second time that her father has told her that Gordons do not give up and gave her encouragement to continue the fight. So again, we really strengthened that relationship between the two of them. And he really is playing a great father type. I think this was a wildly different Batgirl story that really took the heroine to the streets where it needs her help the most. And the likely bad guys were seen sympathetic to the reader's eyes, but I think that this worked well with the circumstances that Babs was undergoing at this time. I give it 8 out of 10 bats. Next up we have Detective Comics number 489, The Mind Warp Mystery. April 1980 is its cover date. Writer Jack C. Harris, penciler Don Heck, anchor Vince Coletta, letterer Ben Oda, and colors Jean D'Angelo. Also seen in this issue are Creatures of the Night, featuring Batman, When the Inmates Run the Madhouse, featuring James Gordon, Computer Crisis, featuring Adam, and the bogus butlers featuring Alfred Pennyworth. Late night in Gotham City. The police have been investigating a drug connection between Gotham and New Carthage, and it is about to come to nothing as the undercover cop assigned to bust up the ring from the inside falls out a window, a la The Departed. Robin catches him, and Batgirl climbs up to find who threw him out. She only finds a frightened man in the hallway who saw the people run past him. Outside, the commish tells Robin that it wasn't his fault the cop died since he was shot before being thrown out a window. Some may wonder why you'd shoot a man before throwing him out of a plague. No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. Becker brings the witness, Mr. Reynolds, to see them and he explains that he cannot recall the details. They have been investigating the drug ring for months and they are desperate. Robin says he has heard about a professor at Hudson U who is working under a government grant to develop a memory drug. Gordon agrees. As they swing away, Batgirl comments that it is nice to see Robin keeping up with his professors, but he plays dumb for some reason, and she tells him that, hey, there's no reason to continue playing dumb. I know that you know that I know. Uh, later, a helicopter lands at Hudson U, but a wheel breaks, nearly crashing the heli. Dick, who has been watching, quickly changes to Robin and gets to the heli. No one is hurt, and Robin says that he believes it was no accident, and the others agree. 
At a science lab, Professor Thiel is just waiting on his assistant, Mr. Boyd. A frantic Boyd arrives and they proceed with the experiment, sticking Reynolds with the serum. Reynolds begins to remember, lets out a scream, and he dies. The investigation continues, and a month later, Dick sees a small bat signal outside his room at Hudson U. He follows the light and finds Gordon. He was really looking for Barbara, and because he believes it to be a true emergency, he tells Robin that Babs is Batgirl. He explains that a few days after they arrived, they were going to meet for lunch, and she seemed to not even know him, as if she had no memory of him. This ties in with something Robin has been investigating, since the professor disappeared ever since Reynolds died. He tells Gordon to go to the lab to find the professor, as he goes to find Babs. After asking people on the street, he finds Babs, who has no memory of being Batgirl. He pulls her costume out of her purse, and it seems to jog something. He somehow convinces her to put the suit on, and they go to a meeting place where they find the professor who knows Dick is Robin. He explains that the government canceled his funding since his experiment killed Reynolds. He blamed Gordon and decided to take the thing closest to him, Barbara. He injected her with the antidote of his memory drug, I guess that's the anti-memory drug, and taped her while he asked her questions, with each question erasing a piece of her memory. She disclosed the ideas of Batman and Robin, and somehow a member of the underworld learned of this and offered a vast sum for them. Robin suddenly realizes the new Carthage dealer is Boyd, the assistant. Boyd sabotaged the helicopter and the professor's memory drug, which killed Reynolds, then read the notes of Babs' memory loss and let the underworld know. They tie the professor up to a pole and go to the lab. Boyd has Gordon at gunpoint, but Babs throws a battering at the right moment and prevents the gun from shooting Gordon. Robin takes Boyd out, but unfortunately, the stray gunshot killed the professor. As Batgirl and Robin walk away with Babs' interview tapes, her father wonders whether she will ever remember him. In Babs' Gotham apartment, Robin plays the tapes for Barbara, and she recovers her memory. Only one tape remains, which holds the IDs of Batman and Robin. While he would like her to forget those secrets, he leaves the decision up to her. Babs burns the tape, leaving Dick and Bruce's IDs secret once more. Well... It has been a while since Batgirl and Robin have had a team-up, and they give us a feature-length tale here and really leave us with a head-scratcher and a new status quo. You know, first the witness at the beginning says they, this is just detail, but he says they, and then he says there was just one, and that's a little confusing, uh, but, you know, I guess he really didn't know what was going on. There were also a lot of deaths in this issue, and more than I think we've ever encountered in a single issue of Detective Comics or Batman Family. First the cop, then the witness, then the professor. I guess they wanted to make this an epic Batgirl-Robin team-up. And of course, we kind of had to kill some of them, especially the professor, to keep a secret. You can't really... Basically, it's sort of the rule of thumb that when somebody learns the uh, the secret ID of a hero, that person's most likely going to die. This truth comes out in Amazing Spider-Man, spoiler, when Captain Stacy finds out that Peter is, in fact, Spider-Man, and then what happens to him? He dies. See, that's what happens. 
The entire time that the witness was talking, I was thinking that he was actually the person who was involved with the drugs. Because uh, this happened previously with the male person, the one that delivered the bomb. He said, you know, it was sent from somebody, but actually he was the bad guy. So I thought, oh, this is probably the same thing. But I was wrong. And then I thought, you know, hey, what if it's the professor? Because he was really sinister looking. But, you know, I was wrong there again. Of course, he was not the greatest of fellows. I find it a little difficult to believe that Boyd sabotaged the helicopter. Um, I, I'm not really sure how he did it, and that's not really explained. You gotta love Dick in his hot pants with his open tee in that one, uh, his open t-shirt in that one panel. That was great. And you know, actually, I always thought his top was one piece, but we actually see that uh, it's a shirt with a vest over it. I do wonder where Gordon got that flashlight, how it can be so powerful. And why Dick would even consider that the bat signal was coming from Gotham? That seems a little foolish. Like, well, it must not be coming from Gotham because I'm too far away. Why would that thought even be in your mind? I would just be like, where's that light coming from? I don't know. The month time skip sort of threw me off and I wondered what had happened. You know, how was Babs missing that long and her father didn't do anything more and sooner? I'm pretty sure people would know who the congresswoman was if he declared her a missing person. And if she didn't know him at that lunch, why would she come to a bat signal, which is what he originally planned? For that matter, someone who has lost their memory are pretty freaked out by anything um, because they just don't know what's going on. They're desperate to find answers. So she would not be walking the streets like this, number one. Hey, number two, the fact that she has that purse and she's probably had it for a month and she's never looked inside and seen that Batgirl costume, that is a little ridiculous. What a shocker that Gordon reveals Babs' secret ID to Robin. I wonder if he figured Robin already knew. And if Robin didn't want to tell him that he already knew, why didn't he act more surprised? What an awkward scene with Robin looking for Babs, finding her, then grabbing her purse and pulling out her costume. How did he convince her to put the suit on? Again, people with memory loss seem to generally always be really jumpy around other people, so why didn't she start screaming when this colorful creeper came up to her and costed her? And where did she find a place to change? Really? In that alleyway? Yikes. If it weren't bad enough to start this issue out in the middle of a drug case, we then get another villain in the middle of this, in the middle of the middle, who basically is bent on vengeance. And basically his is the exposition that solves everything. So this is a pretty strange issue. We're thrown in right away to a normal case which seems to wrap up everything, you know, surround it. Then we go off on a tangent with the Babs who doesn't take Ingo Biloba apparently and we are somehow able to pull it back together. This story is all over the place and attention to detail must be paid. Is the case even solved? Robin explains that Boyd was obviously the new Carthage side of the drug case but what about the Gotham side? And what about this mysterious underworld? There's no sense that a continuation of the story is made, so we can only hope that it will pick up again, though actually um, I'll play the negative Nancy and say that I just doubt it. But really the most shocking thing of all is the erasure of the secret ideas of Batman and Robin. It seems a little strange to begin with that Batgirl was talking to Robin about his life and he pretended to not know what she was talking about. That's really weird considering they both basically were rather open about it during that Island of a Thousand Adventures um, <laughs> issue that we had. But he doesn't feel comfortable having her know his ID. Why? 
It's not like there's a professor every day who will drag the secret out, and they know her secret identity, so isn't there the same danger? She never even told her father, so she decides not to remember, and this just seems so dumb, and I wonder why the writers did this. Why can't Babs know Batman and Robin's IDs? I feel like it came in handy on several occasions, in fact, because if Bruce Wayne ever lost his identity and he was missing, I mean, I think Batgirl would be able to help out. Now they're back to square one. You know, how can they operate as a good and trusting team if this is what happens? I feel like, you know, she's just going to learn of their secrets again, or they're just going to be operating separately. I think it would just be interesting to know why Editorial decided to do this, so if any of you know why or have any inside secrets, it'd be great to know. The roundabout story pulls the grade down for me. Uh, you know, I, I really just don't like the fact that we basically rebooted Babs' memory here. It's like Zatanna popped in, like an identity cr crisis, and <laughs> wiped everybody's mind. It just seems like a cop-out. Uh, you know, it was fun when they knew. Will they no longer have any team-ups? I guess only time will tell. I give this story 6 out of 10 bats. Well, that's it for the vintage set of issues. When I come back, I will review Batgirl number 15 and Birds of Prey number 15. But first, we have Zias's Radio Hour featuring, and of course there's a theme here, Marry Me by Train. See you soon. I won't let you get away with this! From here on out, everything changes. Learn what happens when you mess with the most powerful being in the universe! Please, Goofy, you can't die! In the wake of the battle with Frieza and the destruction of planet Namek, a new threat comes to terrorize Earth. The androids. The sleeper has awakened. I am the prince of all Saiyans once again. Stay out of this one, Vegeta. He's mine. A young man with long black hair and a scarf tied around his neck. And 18, female, blonde, not unattractive. Those are the worst villains the Earth will ever know. Starting in December, and continuing throughout the entirety of 2013, join Donovan and Jesse as they chronicle Dragon Ball Z's most prominent sagas and battles. From the vicious villains. I'm bored. It's time for you to die. And the heroic good guys. I won't let you leave her until I make you pay for what you've done! Who are always... Bring it on! Always screaming. Kaioken Soon you will be at his mercy. What mercy? You will die! The Next Dimension. dbznextdimension.libson.com You're about to find out what it's like to fight a real Super Saiyan. And I'm not talking about Goku. Forever can never be long enough for me To feel like I've had long enough with you Forget the world now, we won't let them see But there's one thing left to do Now that the weight has lifted 
love has surely shifted my way. Marry me today and every day. Marry me if I ever get the nerve to say hello in this cafe. Say you will. Never be close enough for me to feel like I am close enough to you. You wear white and I wear out the words I love you, and you're beautiful. Now that the wait is over, and love has finally showed her my. Train song certainly lends itself to this particular episode and especially helps us lead into the first modern book that we'll be reviewing, Batgirl number 15, Collision Part 2, Engagement. Writer Gail Simone, pencilers Daniel Samperet, inks Vicente Sefuentes, and colors Ulysses Areola. Some time ago in Arkham Asylum, Joker asks a doctor whether she read his journal, and she explains that it was difficult to make out, which he understands since his enthusiasm and choice of ink made it illegible. Now, Joker happily skates around Batgirl, saying that he feels they make a cute couple, and he expects a dowry. If she marries him, she'll be able to save Bab Sr.'s life, but he needs to know the answer to the question. Then, Joker explains that he has all the answers about the bat. He knows everything about him, though it may be jumbled since he wrote some of it after being beaten senseless. He continues to narrate as the doctor flips through pages of the diary until she comes to a page which describes what he would do if he ever met a nine-year-old named Sasha, who happens to be the daughter of the doctor. Now, 
Joker puts a gun to Barbara Sr.'s head and demands to know the answer, and Beckerel relents, though it's not really that easy. Outside of Cherry Hill skating, James watches and receives an emotional phone call from Alicia, who frantically explains that Babs was attacked and left. She wants James. Then, the doctor wants to go, but Joker explains that therapy time is not over, and he continues to prattle on about the journal as the doctor breaks down. The journal has everything, his side of the story, even the exact qualifications for his life partner and the wedding. Now, Batgirl shouts to the henchman that Joker is less than three meters from the bomb, then goes after Joker, hitting key points until he falls and drops the gun. She picks up the gun and points it to a crucial point in his spine. A sniper shoots near her and she gets off a Joker. Joker hands Batgirl instructions and tells her if she follows them, Bab Sr. will be safe. Batgirl doesn't want to leave the people in the rink, but Joker asks, what people, as they have all died of laughter. Before leaving, Batgirl puts her mother's finger in a bag within a bag of ice. I don't really know where she got the Ziplocs, but okay. She then tells Joker that the rules no longer apply here. After she leaves, Joker receives a phone call from James Jr., who tells him he knows what Joker is planning and that he will not allow it. Alicia is clearly confused and asks what he is doing, to which he responds that they are going to help his sister, apparently. Then... The doctor asks why Joker is telling her this, and he explains that she's a female, and that females are tricky and prone to infidelity. Why marry someone if she's only going to cheat? Why not? Right after the wedding during the honeymoon, he takes her arms and legs and keeps her alive forever in the basement. Now isn't that romantic? Now... Batgirl arrives at a condemned church, looks at the directions, get flowers, get veil, get hitched, and goes inside. She sees the creepy veil and flowers on an altar, and then a clown appears with a gun pointed to a priest's head. The priest explains that a whole gang of clowns have his congregation hostage. No idea why there are churchgoers in a condemned church, but hey, I guess it's supposed to make sense somehow. Who knows? Looks like Batgirl walked into her doom. Next, we have Till Death Do Us Part. Well, my biggest issue with this issue uh, is the intermittent flashes to the Doctor and the Joker in the past. Uh, You know, it just really disrupts the flow. We go from the past to the present and then to the past to the present, and it's just jarring to read. The only connection I can see is the fact that Joker has this diary uh, and professes to know everything about Batman and also talks about his wedding. But, you know, it's more about the Joker than anything. We don't really know what he knows, and nor we do, do we know what part the Doctor plays in all of this. So I don't really feel like uh, this these backflashes have anything to do with the current story. I still don't understand why Joker wants to marry Batgirl. He continues to say that the other members of the Bat family are dragging down the name of Batman, and he wants to destroy them. But how is marrying Batgirl going to change any of that? Don't understand. Another good question is whether James Jr. actually has true feelings for Alicia since he goes to pick her up. And what about his intentions towards Babs? Why does he want to help her? Does he want to be the only one allowed to mess with Babs? So, you know, if I can't have her, no one can, that sort of thing. I don't understand the scene where Babs is shouting that Joker is three meters from the bomb and the bomb has a blast radius of 40 meters. Is this supposed to attract guards or get them to run away? Uh, And then she threatens their wages, but she's surprised that they prepare to uh, kill her from above with a sniper gun. 
don't that's just the one scene that sort of like boggles my mind I don't really know where the writing is coming from and where it's going and for that matter why is Simone using the metric system when she is uh, from the United States hello I like that Batgirl is showing some strength while fighting Joker and she even shows some signs of going over the edge uh, and you know I think if any villain were to do this Joker would be the one for her as he has nearly pushed Batman over the ethical boundary as well we've seen this in, in Batman Hush and Death in the Family as well and she even says the rules no longer apply here which I just find really interesting given the chance would she really kill him I, I think that Simone probably will not write that I don't think Babs will ever cross that line but it would be really interesting to see how far she would go because in Batman Hush he goes like he's on that edge and he has to be pulled back uh, by his allies basically to keep him from killing Joker now I know she said she wanted to do things on her own she did this way back when after or before I guess she cut her hair her a lock of hair and gave it to Nightwing but you know if she fought with Batman during the night of the owls and she's been helping the entire bat family through this particular event uh, death of the family I, I really wonder why she professes to not be with Batman um, it just it's sort of sad though because I've always seen the bat family um, as really close-knit and tight and of course there are members on the periphery like Batwing and Batwoman but I feel like uh, the Robins and Nightwing and Batgirl are always sort of going to be close to Batman so I'm just wondering why it just seems uncharacteristic of Babs to say this thing. Of course, in my you know synopsis, I wondered where she got the two Ziploc bags. I guess she carries some in her utility belt all, at all times. Who knows? I also wonder why a priest has a congregation in a derelict building. Is that really? I mean, <laughs> I don't go to church in a derelict building. Uh, you know, there's no way a few clowns could get a whole group of people to move in the middle of the night, is there? You know, although this issue has some strong character moments, this is overall a weak issue and a weak tie-in to this entire death in the family. Again, we see the Joker not doing what he professes he was going to do, you know, take down those members and really sort of show Batman that he is here and he's never left and Batman should not forget his court jester and Batman is the... Uh, king of Gotham and I definitely would recommend Nightwing number 15 if you're interested in seeing what Joker really should look like and, and should be written because in that particular issue uh, Nightwing number 15 he really well he goes after Nightwing as he said he was going to do and I think it's it's great it's a great metaphor as well as um, being very direct so this issue six out of ten bats next up we have Birds of Prey number 15 Sayonara Katana writer Dwayne Sorzynski penciler Juan Jose Rip inker Vicente Sefuentes and colorist Chris Sotomayor Yokohama, Japan. Condor, with an unknown civilian, is falling down the side of a building, with Condor demanding answers and the civilian saying they are both going to die unless they get out of the city. Elsewhere, Dinah finds Starling and Batgirl back at the sushi place, where Starling did her interrogation. They look a little worse for wear, and Dinah asks where Katana is, when Starling checks the tracking device she put on Katana two issues ago, and finds that she is 1,000 feet below sea level. 
We catch up with Katana, beaten, chained, and with half a mask. Garasuki asks Katana whether she bleeds her husband and screaming inside her sword as it is being smelted or smelted. Welcome to 1975, Ashton Powers and Faja. Excuse me while I change. The holler boogie has made me sweaty. Yeah, You see, Mr. Powers. I love gold. The look of it, the taste of it, the smell of it, the texture. I love gold so much that I even lost my genitalia in an unfortunate smelting accident. Hence the name, Gold Member. Katana says her quarrel is not with Garasugi, but he replies that the daggers know her sins and they will cleanse them from the face of the earth. The bomb is set to go off in 15 minutes, and the daggers are willing to give their lives. Suddenly they hear a cry which heralds the doom of the daggers as the birds come in blasting and fighting away. They are clearly outnumbered and they are taking a beating, not even knowing where to look for Katana. Katana, on the other hand, breaks her own arm to get out of the chains, retrieves her sword from the fire, and gets back into action. Above, Dinah has that strange sensation in her head again, the thought of Kurt, which then brings on an intense canary cry, which nearly shatters the skulls of her companions, were it not for earplugs that she gave them earlier. The fight continues upstairs. The fight continues downstairs as each fight draws near. Isn't there a series called Upstairs, Downstairs that's about, I think it's sort of, the original Downton Abbey, but I could be wrong. I th I'm pretty sure it's about maids and servants living in that era and what it was like then. Anyways, Katana is about to be killed when the ultimate deus ex machina, Condor in this case, flies out of the sewer with the bomb in hand and stands back to back with Katana. At Garosuki's insistence, the daggers rush downstairs to get the bomb back. The birds follow. We have an epic splash fight scene. Katana says she wants to slice the bomb. Condor says, you crazy woman. But her husband says, it's okay. She cuts the bomb in half like a tomato. It fizzes out. Then Katana takes control, forces the resignation of the leader, and all's well that ends well. The bruised and battered birds are at the airport getting ready to leave. Katana says that she will be staying behind in order to clean up the dagger clan. Dinah offers to stay, but Katana insists that she go it alone. Starling breaks the tension with a group hug, and Dinah tells Katana to pay her respects to Condor for knocking her out in the alley. On the plane, Starling wants to know what is up with Dinah and her cry. Dinah says it only happened when Kurt was around, and since he's dead, she doesn't really understand what's up. But please don't tell Babs. Thanks, Pete. We should catch up sometime. Let's get some lunch some evening. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll come by and have some of your Moondance coffee someday. And I won't tell Harry. No, don't tell Harry. I won't. I won't tell Harry. Later in Gotham City, the remnant of the birds are back to the original number and realize the necessity of having another member. Batgirl has a suggestion. Never mind that this member is compared to Poison Ivy, has a knack for killing, and helped attack the Bat Fam. No, it's not Lin Min May. <laughs> Each light's flashy, the feeling's smashing. Nor 
is it, Wonder Woman? Here's Talon. Next up, we've got Strix. Well, this issue, uh, just like the, the Detective Comics one that we just reviewed, 489, it totally starts off as if we missed something from the previous issue. We last saw Katana about to confront Garasuki, and now we see her in chains. We saw Condor leave Dinah unconscious in an alley, and now he has some random person and is threatening him. When did all this happen? When were the intervening five hours because the bomb was supposed to go out in 5.58, now we're down to 15 minutes. I really liked the double page uh, splash with the birds fighting. I thought that that was great. Uh, the face painting on the daggers looked like the painting that the followers of Batman use in The Dark Knight Returns, if you remember that. Um, not many people have read that story. Huh, I'm just kidding. Uh, the circumstances surrounding Dinah's headaches don't make sense. Why are they starting all of a sudden? Number one, Kurt never died since he's in that, you know, that tank, that enclosure under Amanda Waller's eye. Number two, the Zero Issue sets up that he has been in this tank since a year ago. Number three, why not tell Babs? Is she not supposed to be her closest friend? Wouldn't she be the one most likely to help? And if Starling has this knowledge, then Shirley Waller will have it in the end as well. And number four, you say all this on a plane as if people can't hear stuff in an enclosed containment. I mean, basically, from seat one to like 14, I feel like you could hear somebody's conversation. So wouldn't Babs be sitting right next to them? Who knows? And you know, number two, sort of this zero issue... Uh, set up the fact that Kurt was still alive. This brings up some really important timeline issues. The second arc of this um, whole bat Birds of Prey run was focusing on Dinah Lance, a murderer, as if Kurt was recently killed. And you remember that group of people came in and then it was revealed Dinah Lance was a murderer, all those things. Yet the zero issue seems to show that he was killed some time before the team was even made one year ago. How does this make sense? Um, now, I can't, I don't understand the timeline. Uh, some people are trying to definitely set it up and get things at work, uh, especially with the Batman timeline, uh, because there should be some rhyme or reason. And Dustin from the Batman universe is, he's, he's, <laughs> I'm convinced, I'm convinced that there are like words that say, parents Bruce's parents killed and you know first appearance of bat like all these different events in the Batman universe pinned over some sort of basement that he has in his house and there are <laughs> there are strings connecting them I am convinced that that there's a room in his house just like that and he's going to come out with a special and he's going to sort of lay it all out and and I'm interested to hear that because it just boggles my mind what's going on and some things just really don't fit. And I think this, if we don't even take into consideration anything from the outside and just look at this book, I think that this just really does not make sense. Um, so there was some sort of mistake going on, unless I'm completely reading those wrong. But if you guys see anything, or if you have any insight on that particular timeline, in The Birds of Prey, when Kurt died, the Zero issue, and that second arc with... Um, with that team coming after Dinah as if Kurt was recently murdered, please let me know. Remember to email backroadoracle at gmail.com. As a Katana-focused arc, uh, this doesn't really seem to do as great a job. We don't really get any answers of Katana's connection with the daggers, what her sins are, 
anything. This arc seems like uh, Swarzynski was told that Katana was getting her own book. And he was supposed to set it up and write it off and probably was given a lot of stuff like this. She, this is what's supposed to happen. She's going to be here, here, here. And then you've got the rest. So we're really left with nothing. Will Anasenti pick it up here and answer the questions that remain? Will her base of operations be in Japan? Will Condor be a supporting or main character in that book? It's kind of a good question. I wonder what Katana number one is going to be like. At the airport, if you saw three women with uh, bandages and abrasions and, and cuts all over their faces, and I guess body, any sort of area that's, you know, revealing skin, would you not stare at them? Like a public area like that sort of blows my mind. And then now we have the talent on the Birds of Prey. Is this a good decision? Of course, like we saw it coming that there's going to be a new member. Uh, this may be a shock that it was Talon. I kind of thought it was going to be Condor, but of course solicitations always sort of spoil things for you. She does have a good skill set for sure, but she's a born killer and she doesn't really understand the world. What will become of Dinah's wishy-washy no-killing rule? Because we see back and forth, it's just not consistent. Who's to say the town won't turn on them at the first command of a member of the court? Plus, it's not like she's going to be able to relay any information to her teammates if something comes up since, well, guess what? She's mute. Ultimately, we're left with more questions yet again. And I can only hope that Katana's series answers the questions raised in this arc and that as we get back to the status quo here, we fill in the blanks created from the previous arcs. Uh, but of course, there's going to be a new writer on Birds of Prey. Originally, uh, Jib Zub was going to be the new writer of Birds of Prey. And he even had some interviews posted about it. But now recently, Christy Marks, who's actually been writing on Sword of Sorcery, is going to be taking over this title. Who knows what that big change is about. I, you know, I just wonder, are you going to pick up any of the loose ends that Swarzynski left open-ended throughout all these arcs? And are, is anything going to be solved, uh, especially from the, the first arc with uh, the cleaners? Overall, it was a decent issue. Not the best issue for Katana to leave on, and we can only guess what it's going to be like with Talon. 7 out of 10 birds. I continue to follow along with World's Finest and Team 7, and of course report the grades that I feel like they deserve. World's Finest number 7, Family Matters Part 2, continues the story uh, in the previous issue with Damien and Helena, and I enjoyed this issue. Certainly enjoyed the Damien and Helena section better than Power Girl, but I, I'm cert I'm very happy to report that her costume did not get shredded this time. Uh, but I give it 8 out of 10 shredded costumes. Team 7, number 3, Black Diamond Probability, Mission 1.3, Darkness Rising. Uh, it was sort of jumbled uh, a little all over the place. The mouthpiece for it was Slade Wilson. I give it 7 out of 10 Amanda Wallers. Uh, Eclipso is coming into play and of course Eclipso is taking over Wilson's body and, and really has that blue and orange which sort of points to the future of him as Deathstroke in that particular costume. So I guess we'll just see and of course we had Essence which I didn't really care for her when I saw her in Red Hood and the Outlaws so maybe that's why I didn't enjoy it as much. Next up we have Babs in the Tube. Batman! 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 Batman!
Paul. This is the segment where I examine an individual appearance of Barbara Gordon in the media, whether it be TV or film. And currently I'm watching the 1966 Batman TV series, but we are reaching the end. Today, or this episode, we have episode 114, season 3, episode 20, Penguin's Clean Sweep. It aired January 25th, 1968. Starring Adam West as Bruce Wayne slash Batman, Burt Ward as Dick Grayson slash Robin, Neil Hamilton as Commissioner Jim Gordon, Stafford Rep as Chief O'Hara, Alan Napier as Alfred Pennyworth, and of course Yvonne Craig as Barbara Gordon slash Batgirl. Guest starring Burgess Meredith as the Penguin, Newell Oistrake as Pushbroom, Charles Decrop as Dustbag, and Monique Von Voren as Miss Clean. The Blackbird of Prey, the Penguin, his assistants Dustbag and Pushbroom, and his mall Miss Clean visit the U.S. Mint to conduct their own guided tour of the building. Later, the dynamic duo are alerted by the bird and his minions at the Mint and dash to police headquarters, where they immediately spot Penguin right outside and apprehend him. Upon learning the tricky bird stole absolutely nothing from the Mint, they release him and decide to see what he's up to. Joined by Batgirl, Batman, and Robin head for the Mint and discover that Penguin has infected the tender with the dreaded Ligerian sleeping sickness, a disease which puts its victim to sleep for years. And a supply of the contaminated cash has already been shipped to the Gotham National Bank. While Batgirl speeds to the bank by Batgirl cycle, as a ruse, Batman and Robin take the Batmobile to Gotham General Hospital to heck on the supply of vaccine B6, the only known antidote to the sleeping sickness. Unfortunately, they arrive in time to discover that Penguin has given himself in Dustbag and Pushroom a dose of the vaccine, then pours it down the drain, releases three Ligerian fruit flies, and leaves the caped crusader and the boy wonder to be bitten alive by the infectious insects. Batman uses his all-purpose bat swatter to put two of the flies out of their misery. Then he spots the third fly on Robin's nose and uses his bat tweezers to remove it and take it back with them to the Batcave to analyze. Before they do, they head back to Gotham Bank to relay the news with Batgirl. At the bank, they find that $13,000 of the tainted tender have already been distributed to unknowing Gothamites. Not knowing exactly which bills are infected, the Cape Crusader leaves nothing to chance and immediately puts through a warning broadcast by radio to the public, urging them to get rid of the corrupted cash. As the people dump the money into the street, Penguin and his gang promptly vacuum up Gotham's cash-laden boulevards with giant vacuum cleaners. While the Penguin sorts his newfound wealth, millionaire Bruce Wayne contacts all of the world's financiers, warning them not to take any of the money now circulating in Gotham City. Realizing he cannot do anything with his infectious, ill-gotten gains, the Penguin threatens to release 500 fruit flies in the city unless Bruce instructs the financiers to accept his money. After consulting with amateur weatherman Alfred Pennyworth, who, with an army of bat weather instruments, informs them that the current weather will be cold and clear, Bruce defies his threat. An incensed Penguin quickly makes good on his ultimatum by releasing the flies, and, believing they did their job, he and his gang set out to rob Gotham's jewelry stores. Finding the dynamic trio, Gordon and O'Hara, asleep in the street, reassures the fiendish foul that his insidious scheme has come to pass. But as Penguin overplays his hand by trying to remove Chief O'Hara's gold watch, they all jump up and knock the villains cold. Penguin is deposited in the nearest garbage can. The Cape Crusader informs the bilious bird that the flies were too used to tropical heat and were instantly overwhelmed by the cold weather, which crushed them to death. Robin adds that Penguin tricked himself by giving himself that double dose of sleeping sickness vaccine. Such a large dose that he'll probably contract Ligerian sleeping sickness himself. And the 
penguin falls fast asleep. It suddenly then starts raining, despite Alfred's forecast. Meanwhile, Calamity Jan and her mom, Frontier Fanny, pay a visit on that criminal cowpoke, Shame, at the Gotham State Pen. I guess these episodes are following in the path of uh, these issues that were sort of all over the place, because this one was as well, and it was kind of interesting to see the bat fly swatter and then the fly land on Robin's nose. Oh boy, oh boy. Next up we have everybody's favorite segment, Shipper Spotlight. Everybody quiet down now and get some sleep. that shipper spotlight highlights a particular couple and in 120 seconds or less I give you the history of romance between the two and whether it is hot or not and this is a very special shipper spotlight because it was actually done by a student of mine and uh, this student actually happens to be the brother of the student that's giving up sweets for Lent. Probably one of the best families that I know for sure. Uh, I cherish that family greatly. Uh, So here we have Shipper Spotlight. So the last one that you guys will hear for a couple months. This is based on the 1972 to 1981 television series The Waltons and it's episode 5 of season 3 titled The Romance. So you know it's going to be good. Olivia Walton, wife of John Walton and mother of seven, discovers that she has a talent for painting and decides to enroll in an art class. Upon arrival at the class she meets her new art teacher Mr. Joshua Williams, a polite and welcoming man about 10 years younger than Olivia. He gets Olivia set up working on a still-life painting of a bowl of apples. A first scene of romance. As Olivia paints the apples, Joshua stares on from beside her, admiring much more than just her expressive painting. Olivia glances up at him to ask a question about technique, unaware of the romance that is ensuing while Joshua stares into her eyes. The next day after the class ends, Olivia stays behind to show Joshua a painting she did, capturing a scene of her home, Walton's Mountain. Joshua shows deep interest and starts a conversation about the best places in the world to travel to for artistic inspiration. Joshua then makes a theoretical suggestion that he and Olivia should travel to Paris together, live and paint there for the rest of their lives, and he never look back. And then never look back. Slightly taken aback, Olivia tells Joshua that even though foreign travel is tempting, she would never forsake her present life or a life without her husband and family. However, Olivia does not seem to sense the seriousness and sincerity of Joshua's notion. 
Several days later, Joshua drives his class of four to an art museum to inspire creativity. He makes sure the three other members are in the back seat of the car while Olivia sits shotgun beside him. At the museum, Joshua is always by Olivia's side and listens without response to Olivia's musings about various paintings, unaware that Joshua is intently staring at her. Upon returning to the school, the other three members of their party drive off, leaving Olivia standing alone with Joshua in the night air. She thanks him for the wonderful evening, preparing to get into her car, and just before she does, Joshua bends over and kisses her full on the lips. Olivia pulls away with a disbelieving and disgusted look on her face and drives home. The next day, Olivia refuses to go to the class and tells her husband John the events of the previous night. John asks her how she felt about it and she responds reassuringly that she had no idea how intimately Joshua was really acting towards her and basically that there was no way she'd ever be seen in a relationship with him because he's just a baby. John is satisfied with her response and tells her that he knows she will make it right between her and the art teacher. Later that day, Joshua stops by the Walton's residence and is greeted by Olivia. Seated at the dining room table, he apologizes and tells her that he wants her to keep coming to the class. Olivia agrees. John then enters the room. And no, folks, there's no fisticuffs. Uh, but Joshua apologizes to him. And having been forgiven, he leaves. So Olivia and Joshua share a passion for art, but, you know, that's about all they have in common. For goodness sake, Olivia is a married woman with seven children, ten years older than Joshua, and thinks of him as a baby compared to her in age. And what in the world does Joshua see in Olivia that he can't seem to see in any other woman of his own age? Also, why is he so quick to become romantically involved? The thought of this attraction is somewhat sickening. The two of them don't exactly see eye to eye in their relationship either. Olivia sees him merely as an interesting art teacher, while Joshua is always five steps ahead, going so far as to unexpectedly kiss her, even with the knowledge of her age, marital status, and large family. What a creeper. So hot or not, uh, from this student mouth to your ears, uh, it is not hot. And I just found it comical because I actually watched this particular episode <laughs> with that family. So, um, yeah, I, I'd say it's still, it's not. That was the first Walton's episode that I'd ever seen in my life. And uh, it was fun, though, because, you know, I think some people, when they think of the Waltons, they probably think of some sort of boring television show because, you know, all people want now are Gossip Girl and Desperate Housewives. But, you know, being thrown into the middle, that was episode five of season three. I actually really enjoyed it, and I'd be interested to get to know the Waltons a bit more. So this was a not. Remember, if you have any suggestions for Shipper Spotlight, uh, you can even write one in. You could, if you would like, record one, because I kind of like that different people have come on and, and recorded them. Um, of course, we had Michael Bailey. It'd be great to just get other podcasts just sort of pop on as a way to pimp their own podcasts out by doing a favorite couple. Uh, but you can always send me suggestions at oracle at gmail.com. Lastly, we have the literary recommendation, and I'm going to recommend Astounding Wolfman, uh, which is an image comic, and it only ran for 25 issues, and it's done now, and it was written by Robert Kirkman, art by Jason Howard, and this is the first thing that um, Jason Howard did, and now they're doing Super Dinosaur. And Astounding Wolfman starts off, wow, right off the bat uh, with Gary and his family and they're camping and, and just like the first page has him just really ripped apart almost um, because he was actually attacked and they think it was a bear but it's actually uh, by a wolf and, or, well, 
by a werewolf and he ends up getting these powers and he decides that um, he wants to use these powers for good but there's usually one night each month that he just turns into this really feral beast and doesn't know what he's doing and, and starts to kill kills people and everything and then this vampire guy comes out of nowhere and decides to help him out and train him. And I don't really want to spoil what goes on because there are a lots of cliffhangers and really shocking things that happen. But, you know, you don't really know what to expect. I think sometimes with um, independent books or creator-owned. Um, but I think you should take a chance on these because, you know, I think it really comes from their hearts. And they don't have to please anyone, you know, no editors or anything. And I think... Just this freedom gives them more creativity and better things come out sometimes than than I think we see at DC and Marvel. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. So there are four trades that you can pick up, and I it was like really quick for me, quick reads. Uh, well, quick as in I didn't want to put it down. So I definitely recommend checking out Astounding Wolfman. Remember to send any questions or comments to backworldoracle at gmail.com. Continue to sign that petition. Get Batgirl Year One back into production. You know, we've got Dark Knight Returns coming out. There's a Superman Brainiac movie. Um, Flashpoint. Lego Batman 2. Oh, well, I'm sorry. Lego Batman movie is supposed to come out, so we'll see what that's like. Once again, thanks to Mile High Comics for sponsoring Batgirl to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Thanks also to TV.com for providing the episode summary of Penguin's Clean Sweep. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your January month. And I will see you next time with uh, Donovan Morgan Grant on our shipper special. So until then, fly on, Babs lovers. Just plain Barbara Gordon masquerading for a lark as she rides into the night on her special Batgirl cycle. Who knows? Is the dynamic duo destined to become the triumphant trio? Only time will tell us more about this dazzling dare doll. Ah, I love a happy ending, don't you? <laughs>